Amen. Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. Turn the lights on for me, Alex, if you would, please. And all those who have little ones up through grade three, you can be dismissed to go downstairs if you'd like. Those little ones can go down there. Or you can keep them with us if you'd like up here. We love them and love them to be wherever you would like them to be. The rest of you, if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Special thanks to uh, Krista Glosser for leading us in that last song. So worshipful, we have a lot of work on her part, and we're so grateful for uh, for that and being able to really brought, be brought before the throne. You know, when we pray before we start with the band in the morning, almost every single time, we, we really would like to disappear up here. That's our desire. We, we don't want you to notice what we're doing. We'd like you to just focus on what the Lord is doing. And so it's our joy to do what we do, but we really just want to not be here uh, in your view. And all you see is the Lord, and all you see is his beauty and his majesty. And so that's our desire to bring you to the point and to bring ourselves to the point where we're ready to hear his word and then respond. And so that's where we are now. So let's look at our copy of God's word, if you would. And it's good to be back in this uh, in this seventh chapter of Second Corinthians after taking a brief survey last week of fervent love, really based on a number of questions from several weeks ago, a love that stretches out and covers the offenses of others, the kind of love that Paul has put on display to a rebellious and a harsh church here in this letter, and the kind of love that is essential for the church to function properly. And as we saw last time, this is the kind of love that's in action, and that is supposed to be normal for uh, the life of the church and for believers. So Carried along by the Holy Spirit, Paul really pens several paragraphs here that begin by dealing with reconciliation between Paul and the church. And it becomes a model in these verses for us to see what that looks like. And from these first three verses, we've been able to see some important principles that Paul puts on display as he reveals his heart. And we didn't go over any of those last week, so we'll review a couple of those and then move into our new section. And and that's uh, when we had this whole thing with reconciliation between the redeemed, that means love is going to have to be there and be active. And so I'd like you to turn and look in verse 2 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, and we'll read through verse 4. Make room in for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak, verse 3, to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together, verse 4. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. And as we look at that passage, we can see it isn't difficult to deduce that there's a problem. And we recognized uh, two weeks ago that some of the most difficult things that happen that create a burden that seems greater than uh, we can bear and greater than any unexpected physical trouble we may face are problems and trouble that come through relationships misunderstandings, hard feelings, offenses, people hurting people. All of us have experienced that at some time. Pride, our pride can get involved. Certainly our, our personal evaluation of what we deserved or what we didn't deserve becomes the litmus test for whether or not we are going to forgive. And, and those are significant obstacles in the church. No question. There's significant obstacles anywhere. There's a relationship issue. And now considering the way that Paul has been treated by the church, argu- arguably the worst church in the New Testament if you just think about difficulty and hardship and the things that they did to Paul, it'd be easy for Paul to hold on to some hurt, to keep wounds open. We saw a couple weeks ago, but we saw last time that he didn't do that. So what did he do? And then by example, uh, we see what we are to do, and that was to bridge the gap. And, and we saw some very important steps to make the pathway to reconciliation clear. And, and Paul is, again, our example, through a combination of truth and humility and common ground and encouragement, uh, he wants to put the church in a position where they can follow God's plan as a healthy body. And, and that attitude, of course, becomes our example as we deal with hurt and possible unforgiveness in our own lives. And so we can take these principles and put them to work right away uh, as they begin to solve the problems that you may have with someone else. So in 2 Corinthians 7, 2, he begins to bridge the gap and he urges their response. And, and this is his encouragement for reconciliation when he says, he says, make room uh, in your hearts Make room for us in your hearts. And that was our first principle, if you remember a couple of weeks ago. If there's going to be reconciliation, love is going to have to be a two-way street. And Paul is calling for out for some specific action. This is an aorist. He, he's looking for a point where the process begins to move forward. 
And so uh, he desires to have a right relationship with them. And in order for the church to function as she should, love has to be there. We, should, we took a lot of time last time to look at that. So we won't go through that again. Now look at the last part of verse 2. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. So some in the church had their own feelings about Paul. But Paul was also clear that they weren't entitled to their own set of facts. They may have some opinions about what they think about Paul and what they think about what he's done or whatever, but they weren't entitled to their own set of facts. And, and if the pathway to reconciliation is going to be clear, sometimes if love is absent from part of the equation, that fervent love that stretches out and just covers a multitude of offenses, then that was principle number two. If there's going to be reconciliation, the truth may have to be spoken in love. And that's what Paul's doing here. Now, they may not believe him, as he goes through these three things, they may think, well, that's not true or whatever, but it's irrelevant at this point. Paul's going to speak the truth in love, and whether they receive it or not uh, is not really going to be under his control. So Paul takes the next step and makes sure the facts are clear, and he's speaking the truth in love. And that's really precisely, as I was thinking about that this week, that's precisely the same message he had for the church in Ephesus. So Paul hasn't varied a whole lot as he deals with the church and he deals with issues. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, he says to the church this, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. There we go. And that's precisely what Paul's doing in Second Corinthians 7. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. Now, Paul didn't want the church in Ephesus or, or the church in Corinth or, or any church he planted to continue in sinful behavior. And here, acting immaturely, in Ephesians, like children, is part of that sinful behavior. And here's the question. Do children always understand the bigger picture in your family? No. Are they thinking about, uh, always thinking correctly about the situation? No. Paul says to this church, I don't, I don't want you to be children, see? tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know, knocked off course, in other words, uh, by every change that comes along. Knocked off course by relationship issues. Knocked off course by personal preferences. Knocked off course by being carried away by every new thing that comes along. That's every wind of doctrine. Believing every bit of gossip and slander. That's the trickery of, trickery of men and craftful, deceitful, craftiness and deceitful scheming. Paul says, don't be children and where this is the case. To avoid all that, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we're going to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. And, and there's an end game for speaking the truth in love. And what is it? We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's the end game, isn't it? And when you speak the truth in love, when Paul covers these three offenses that he knows are still out there and the church is still thinking about them, he wants to make clear that the, the true set of facts are these He's heading for the end game, which is we're going to grow up. We're not going to be like children. We're not going to be tossed off course by every relationship issue, by every personal preference, by every new thing that comes along, by every bit of gossip, by every bit of slander. No. See, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Paul says that when we begin to do that, when we put away the childishness and the immaturity, then the church will begin to function like she should. And when we start looking like Christ and acting like Christ, Paul says, verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. The church will start working correctly in unity, in proper working, metroenergia, that's a noun, a compound. Now, these words are used in the New Testament to refer to God's supernatural power. What happens when we cease being children, we stop hanging on to offenses, we stop being knocked off course by relationships and personal preferences and gossip and slander and all that? What happens there? There becomes the proper working. These words are used in the New Testament to refer to God's supernatural power. This is the power that's referred to when something miraculous was done by Jesus. Anytime we see those words, Jesus has done something powerful. So this is the power of God to accomplish his work his way. And in the church, it's released when what happens? We stop acting like children. See? When we stop hanging on to relationship issues, when we stop hanging on to personal preferences, or to refer back to where we are now, when we start reaching out in fervent love to one another, covering a multitude of offenses both ways, when that's the case, see, then the power of God begins to be released and everybody has to come on board, if you will. This has to be the pattern of the church. That's what he means by what he says of each individual part. Everybody has to decide this is where they want to be, see. So when the church hears and acts on the truth spoken in love, then God's power is released in the ministry. And what does it do? 
causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? What's the last word? Love. Building up of itself in love, see? Agape. But in order to get there in Ephesus, the truth had to be spoken in love because they were not displaying fervent love. They were acting like children. And in order to get there in Corinth, the truth has to be spoken in love because they were not displaying fervent love. Quite the opposite, as a matter of fact, love was absent. So Paul asserts his integrity on three levels. And in each case, the aorist tense is employed here. So he says, uh, he's indicating that he has in mind the particular occasion of his past visits to Corinth and the way he conducted himself then. So Paul says this, I wronged no one. And so we saw that's the word for injustice. I didn't, I didn't, there was no injustice in my actions towards someone else. To the ancients, the word referred to breaking the law. More likely here for Paul, it's the more general sense of, uh, is intended of deliberately hurting or injuring someone. And Paul was clear. He's innocent of this. Secondly, Paul says, I corrupted no one. That's the word for spoiling. I didn't spoil anybody. Uh, Everything I did in your midst, Paul says, uh, in our present context, is that he's not caused the church to be in a worse state by his teaching, his actions, his comments, his admonitions. Uh, He's not corrupted or brought someone to a worse state in their walk with the Lord. That's the idea. And he didn't bring habits or freedoms into the church, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, that created a stumbling block or encouraged immoral behavior. Paul says, I'm innocent of that. I didn't spoil anybody. What I did didn't create any, any hardship for anyone. I, did, I didn't wrong anybody. I didn't corrupt anybody. And then thirdly, I, I, he says this, I took advantage of no one. We saw this word usually as referred in relation to greed, to get what could be taken, to use a position as a minister to get financial gain. We see that all over the country. Paul says, I'm not guilty of that. Paul claims personal integrity in financial matters. And they may have their own opinion of Paul. Certainly they did because Paul wouldn't have had to address these things if he didn't know that this was the undercurrent still. But they don't get their own set of facts, and, and these are obviously the things that are circulating about with Paul, and they, they aren't walking in fervent love, otherwise they would cover them, whatever, whatever the, uh, whatever the, uh, the uh, gossip was, whatever the, the talk was, whatever the slander was, whatever the personal preference was, as they evaluated Paul. They could have covered that with fervent love. They weren't, and so Paul has to speak the truth in love and second the record straight, just like he did in Ephesus, and just say, listen, let's not be children, tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine and all of that kind of stuff, see? If I really love, I'm truthful and honest, and that's what Paul's doing here. He's honest about what God once said. He's honest about what God once done. He's honest about them. He's honest about him. That's the stuff of real love. And then verse 3, he says this, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. And that word condemn, catechrisis, uh, rendered judgment, to be uh, condemned, that's what the noun means. Paul has to tiptoe around everything here. So even when he speaks the truth in love, then he comes back with this statement, kind of a disclaimer, just says, listen, I'm not pronouncing a judgment on you. He's wise enough to know they're going to take everything he says in the worst possible way. And so he wants to make sure there's no way they can misconstrue this. And that was principle number three. There's going to be reconciliation between believers. The church has to get, catch this, the church has to get past petty suspicions and personal preferences and raise the bar to a continued affirmation of the permanent bond that exists between believers. And what is that? And that's what we saw next. See, I don't speak to condemn you. You know, the whole thing can be taken wrong. Paul affirms he isn't condemning them. Because the comeback is, you know, when you speak the truth to bridge the gap, you know, if there's no grace there and no fervent love that covers a multitude of offenses, then somebody's going to say, you know, that really wasn't that nice and you were condemning us. You know, Paul says, I'm not rendering judgment. I said before that you're in our hearts. And, and when did he say that before? Well, you can pick, you can pick a time, right? Second Corinthians 3, 2, you're our letter, right? Uh, written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Uh, you, you're not written on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Second Corinthians 6, 11. You remember that? Um, our mouth has spoken freely to you. Our heart is open wide. You're in our hearts. I'm not speaking to condemn you. He just affirms his feelings for them. And that's important, beloved. And we see that just as a kind of side note. Follow Paul's example. We learn how to say it in lots of different ways, expressing how we feel about someone. And then he says this. There's this, there's this bar. We've got to get past the pettiness between people. Petty suspicions, personal preferences. Raise the bar. What's the bar? To die together and live together. Not to live and die, but to die and live. We went through that, so I won't go through it again. It's by dying that we live. It's by suffering that we are prepared for glory. You have to lose your life to find it. You have to die with Christ, and you're raised with Christ, and you're raised with Christ to never die. Paul says, you're in my heart. I'm not speaking to condemn you. This is how I feel about you. And that's the wonderful permanent bond that all believers have in common. What is it? That's the higher bar than personal preference and differences and petty suspicions and all of that. We will spend eternity together. 
And so Paul just calls them to remember that. Why live in harmony? Why reconcile your differences? You know, you died with Christ. You're going to be transformed into your glorious body, which you will dwell in forever along with every other believer. So you don't want to continue in irreconciliation. And part of the way to accomplish it is to be reminded that we have a bond that supersedes all other issues. See, this is no time for petty or fickle Christianity. The church can only function fully if they're fervently loving one another. So there's no time to waste on hard feelings and on offenses. If there's going to be reconciliation, love has to be a two-way street. If there's going to be reconciliation, truth has to be spoken in love sometimes. If there's going to be reconciliation between believers, the church has to get past the petty suspicions and all these personal preferences and raise the bar and continue this affirmation that we have a bond that's greater than whatever it is that we have some trouble with. Okay? Now, let's look at our fourth principle of reconciliation. And, and, and these next three are really directed inwardly. So this is kind of a self-evaluation, if you will, turning the light on there to see where, where you are, how you're going to accomplish some of these things and what that's going to look like. And, and we'll just, uh, these next three will really be personal barometers of maturity, if you will. If you want to know where, if you're there, if you want to know how to make this be accomplished, you want to know why you keep failing me, perhaps, or, or why you're succeeding at this, these things will be true for you, okay? These are sanctification issues. They reflect how much we've assimilated our knowledge of the nature of God and his purposes in us to help us chase after reconciliation. Let's look at Paul's next statement. He says this. Look at verse 4. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. And we get a really great self-reflection from Paul's comment here, don't we? This really shows his heart and the fervent agape love he has for them. And this is, this is principle number four. If there's going to be reconciliation between believers, then fervent love, mark this, beloved, fervent love will stop keeping track of the wrongs and start thinking and talking about the good things. Did you catch that? At some point in maturity, in agape love, you've got to stop keeping track of the wrongs and start thinking and talking about the good things. And that's going to come straight from 1 Corinthians 13.5. And we looked at that just briefly last week. What was it? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. True agape love, logizete, doesn't take into account. You're not logging it. It's a word connected with the keeping of accounts of making a note of something, keeping track of, or calculating something uh, that is owed, or what was paid, or what was done. And you can really get that self-reflection with Paul's statement. He says, great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. And when I read that, it's really shocking to me. Is it shocking to you? It's so, I mean, if you didn't know Paul better, you would just say, he's just shining them on. You can't possibly feel like that, right? I mean, if you had somebody hurt you terribly, do you turn around and want to say, you know, I have great confidence in you and my boasting is huge on your behalf? That's like the last thing you want to say to somebody, right? So the issue here is when love is present, it doesn't keep an account of all the wrongs people do. And if this kind of love is in your life, you're not going to keep records of offenses and hurts and slights and misunderstandings and anything else people around you do to you. And from the other side, you're, uh, you'll, if this love is absent, you're going to keep thinking about it, bringing it up. So you get a kind of a feel where Paul is. If the love is absent, you're going to keep these accounts and you can keep recycling them in your mind. And Paul just models this principle with shoe leather, if you will. And the comments are shocking to us, aren't they? I mean, after all the hurt, does Paul hash it out? I mean, that'd be the, the perfect opportunity for him to say, you know, these are the things you did and these are the things I forgave you for. Because we like that, right? We like to remind people of what they did and then make sure they know that we are bigger than that and we forgave them. But we want to make sure we cycled it back through so they feel grateful. That's exactly how we are, isn't it? You want people to feel grateful for what you've done. Did Paul hash it out? No. Does he say, does he say this? You know, I'd like to have confidence in you if you'd give me something to be confident about. Does he say that? No, we say that, don't we? I'd love to have a great relationship with you and, be, and trust you if you just let me, if you do something that would be trustworthy. Does he say, you know, I want to boast in you, give you something to boast about? No. What does he do? He finds something to celebrate because he doesn't want to dwell on the wrong. That is love, and, that's agape love, not keeping record of wrong with shoes on, isn't it? That's walking out there and doing it. 
And this statement in the next two are really so shocking to us because he focuses on the good, and there's always a way to do that amongst believers. So he says, great is my confidence in you. Great is my confidence. Berahesia, that's a noun from, it's a compound noun. Pass is all and recess is speech. So great is my confidence. So the, to grasp this, it's a reference to unreserved speaking. And this, this is, is to have a clear thought about someone without ambiguity, you know, very plain. It's not just word games. That's, that's the idea. So in other words, by the way, you know, it's not positive thoughts making things happen. That's false, of course. You know that, right? Positive thoughts don't make anything good happen. Paul, Paul, so in other words, Paul isn't saying this. I have great confidence. I have great confidence. I have great confidence. I have great confidence. Because if I say it enough, it'll, it'll be true, right? No. No. I hate, we know the record between Paul and the church. We know how they treated him on a regular basis. And we're going to get reminded of that as we work through the end of the, of the letter. He's saying, I have great confidence because that's how love is. If you don't te- keep record of wrong, then what's the other side? Then you don't bring it up anymore, and then you find something to celebrate. See? I have great confidence because that's how love is. Love doesn't keep record of wrong suffered, and love believes the best, like we saw. It's looking at the end game. It's going to be better. See? We know it's going to be better. And Paul directed his thinking to dwell on the good things the church was doing. See? And from a personal perspective, it means you don't hedge on the thoughts. In other words, you, know, you hear this a lot. I'm getting along with them pretty well now, but we've had some rough patches. What's that, beloved? Is that recycling the wrong? Of course it is. Is that keeping record of the wrong? Yes, it is. It's a spiritual way to express it. Well, we're getting along with that family well now, but we've had some rough patches. In other words, you, you just keep the hurt alive in your own heart, don't you? Because you keep remembering the rough patches. Is Paul remembering the rough patches here? No. And, and those clear and convincing thoughts in his heart really gave way to, what's he say? And great is my boasting on your behalf, right? Caucasus, boasting, it has to do with saying edifying things. And, and we're going to see this word later in this chapter. But remember, so you have some clear thoughts and you're not contaminating them with, you know, we used to get along, you know, we're getting along well now, but it's, we've had rough patches or you kind of recycle. I, I would like to boast in you if you give me something to boast about. You're getting rid of all of that, see? Okay, so you have a clear, uncontaminated, unambiguous, plain thoughts of good, okay? Not contaminated by your own recycling. And that's going to give way to boasting, the calcasis. Saying edifying things. See. Remember what Luke 6.45 says? And and this is a great barometer. Again, I I told you of sanctification. Out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? What? Don't pretend that you're walking in love if out of your mouth recycled hurts continue to come. Because out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. That's where you really are. Okay, if you have to keep saying, well, we've had some rough patches, but it's better now or whatever, you know, give me something to boast about and I'll boast about it. Be truthful and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you that you're, you're truthful. No. See, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Paul says, great is my boasting on your behalf. He has uncontaminated thoughts of good about the church. He's not dwelling on all the negative. And he's giving this to us as an example of what this is going to look like, see. And these are both volitional acts, uncontaminated thought life for about someone. Remember what I told you? If, if somebody's hurt you, it's been difficult, somebody's said harsh things about you, bring their name up in prayer and ask the Lord to bless them and encourage them. Right? That's what we're told to do. Jesus is very clear about that. You want to start having uncontaminated thoughts about them? Start doing that every time their name comes into your mind. And then you can really say, you know, great is my confidence in you with all clear conscience. Why? Because you're no longer recycling that stuff through. And then you'll be able to speak clearly about them. You're going to be able to boast and say true things. And these are volitional acts. Don't say to the Lord, Lord, I want to say good things about this person, but I just can't because I really don't like them or they were really hard on me before. Those things are not compatible. 
Okay, you're not going to be able to speak clearly. You're not going to be able to think clearly. You're not going to be able to boast and say good things about someone. And these are all contaminating. And agape is a volitional act flowing out of the power of the Holy Spirit in your own heart. You, the, the Lord's love has been poured on you. You can give it out. And if reconciliation is going to be there, believers have to move past the negative rehashing over and over again. And listen, in marriage, this is this is a ticket to peace in your house. This is a ticket. If you're constantly clashing with your spouse, if it's hardship all the time, listen, somebody's recycling stuff over and over, maybe both of you, and you're not walking in agape love, I'll just tell you that, you're keeping record of wrong, and this is going to cause a difficult time amongst people, okay? It, it, it's hard in the church, it's hard with your kids. Every time your child gets in trouble, should you be bringing up every other time they ever got in trouble? Does the Lord do that to you? No, and so our model for our kids, yes, if they need to be punished, punish them. If they need to be spanked, definitely spank them. And then it's done, and you move past it, okay? If they need a lecture, if they, you've got you've to dress them down, whatever, get it over with and move on, okay? Don't keep rehashing this. Don't bring this up two weeks from now. This is the best way to peaceful relationship if you're having trouble. Believers got to move past the, re, uh, the negative rehashing. And Paul gives us a great example of what that looks like. Find something good in the other person and talk about that. Now let's look at the last part of verse 4 and our last two principles of reconciliation, making the past clear. Paul says this, I'm filled with comfort. He says, I'm overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. Now, (laughs) I don't know about you, but Paul just continues to astound me. And as I worked through this this week, earlier this week, you know, I'm just, I'm filled with comfort. Again, in, in your own flesh, that's, these are not possible. And in this letter, we get to see Paul's character. And in that, we get to see a triumphant Christian. This is what a triumphant believer looks like. You're going to see a victorious Christian, but not because things were always good. And there is real offense and real heartache. And people say, like we said last week, what do I do with the hurt? What do I do when I, with the pain that I feel? And that's principle number five. Again, this is about sanctification. This is an inward look as we're thinking about reconciliation. It's going to be some, some equipment to help you. There's going to be reconciliation between believers. You have to seek the Lord for the comfort that you're going to need to deal with real hurts. We're not downplaying any of this stuff. You, you know Paul's life. You understand what happened. You understand how the church has treated him. And, and many of you have gone through very difficult times. You've had a spouse betray you. You've had uh, loved ones betray you. Friends talk about you. You've had real hurts, difficult things. So what are you going to do with that? You've got the equipment now, the Holy Spirit's in you, a restrainer to help you conform your thoughts to the image of Christ and say the things you should say, but you still have hurts to deal with, so what are you going to do? Paul says, I'm filled with comfort. And so you're going to have to look to the Lord to get the comfort you need to deal with the real hurts. If you're not going to rehash it over again, then you're going to have to deal with the hurts, and this is how you do it. See, and again, it's just so shocking to comment in the middle of pain, in the middle of concern, and all the trouble that he had, and and that is a lesson from Paul's life that has tremendous application. And we learned it, if you remember, way back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul makes this remarkable statement, and it really reveals Paul's perspective on hard times and hard people. Because really, that's what we're talking about, right? And I say this a lot. If you want to be conformed to Christ's image, the Lord's going to either use difficult times or difficult people to do it. Because good times are not going to really conform you into Christ's image. And so, Paul, we get to see really three different things. His attitude, his experience, and his application. And in verse 3, he says this. And you remember this, but it was years ago we looked at this. So, remember he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. So now you can see why Paul can say, I'm filled with comfort. So it's not just words. He comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So Paul deals with three things here that are so important for us when it comes to difficulty, when it comes to being able to say, I'm filled with comfort, when it comes to not rehashing things over and over again, but speaking positively about people and thinking positively about people, see, not just playing word games, but actually doing it. This is the first part. We saw that's an attitude. Here's where we have to start, okay? Attitude. Paul had an attitude of confident assurance in the nature of God. Because he is the, what? Father of mercies and the God of comfort. So he says, blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And Paul reminds the church at Corinth that this attitude is where he starts and where they have to start. You understand the nature of God, that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. See, And we saw that the word all is pretty important here as it relates to attitude. It just means no difficulty, no hardship, no pressing pressure, would ever be too much for what? For the mercy and the comfort that God provides. Do you, when we think about believers who live in other nations, and we think about the hardship that they endure, and many of you are very familiar with that, you've lived amongst them, and if you keep track of any of the things we put up on the screen, you know that this is the case. If you follow any of the Voice of the Martyrs or anybody on Facebook, you'll understand that people go through very, very difficult times. But when you read their writing, do they, you see them rehashing terrible things about their oppressors? No. Do you see them being negative about any of that? No. Why? Because they've understood a basic attitude as you approach difficulty that you have a God who's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So no hardship, no difficulty, no pressing pressure is ever too much for the mercy and comfort God provides. So here's the statement, this wonderful promise, this attitude that is so important. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. How far does that reach? All. It reaches all. That's how far. The promise is just that full. Let's see, He is the origin of mercies. That's what it means to be the father of something. And he is the God of all comfort. See, whenever you need mercy, whenever you need comfort, that should be a great source. And again, this is a volitional response, isn't it? Because your first response is not going to be that. What's your first response? To commiserate. To find somebody to commiserate with, even. But certainly to self-talk. So you're violating Paul's principle about, I have this confidence, assurance in my mind about you. And you're violating the, the principle of, I can boast about these things, and I'm, I'm, I'm comforted fully. Why? Because you haven't taken advantage of the fact that you serve a God who is the God of all comfort. Whenever you need mercy, whenever you need comfort, that should be great a great source of assurance and confidence and optimism and freedom. You get released from that jail that you're in of unforgiveness, right? And holding on to hurts. It's, it's, it's confidence in hurt and trouble and testing and difficulty. It, it's a comp, it's comprehensive for the Christian, for the believer. Whatever the extent of our life situation, whatever the pressing pressure, this isn't for some upper tier Christian. This is what Christianity looks like. You have the same God who is the God of those who are suffering hardship in other places or who have suffered tremendous hardship here and they are, and can say, I am filled with comfort, with a clear conscience, not playing with words. Whatever the extent of our life situation, whatever the pressing pressure, this is Paul's attitude. My attitude is what? I know the nature of God, and he is the God and Father of mercies and comfort. The Father of mercies, or tiramos, the Father of compassion or pity or mercy. Understand that, that whatever you're going through, God is the source of all compassion and pity and mercy. That's his disposition toward you, see? And it's not just that, but the one we see right now in our passage, God of all comfort, because Paul says, I am fully comforted, right? My comfort is very full, very comprehensive. Periclesis, that's the noun form of, of comfort. Uh, the root and verb forms and, and noun forms can be found 10 times in five verses, 16 times in 2 Corinthians. This comfort. And it's, it's found so much in 2 Corinthians because we're seeing Paul's heart. And he's telling you how he gets through the difficult times. And here he says, my comfort is full. He's known as such. God's character is one of comfort. See, all comfort. And then we see Paul gets very specific at the, at the beginning of verse 4, and he moves from attitude to experience. And he says this, who comforts us in all our affliction. So the attitude of the nature is the nature of God is the God of all comfort. And then what's this experience? Everything, Paul says, that I've experienced, I have also experienced an equal portion of God's comfort to cover it. He comforts us, he says, in all our affliction. Not only is God the source, all true comfort comes from him. Not only is, is that part of his character and part of his name, he's doing it right now, see. And again, present active participle, paracleo. 
Paul's experience is that at the very point of trouble, God is actively comforting. He knows God as the God and Father of all comfort and mercy. And he says, my experience is that I go through this thing, and right then he's comforting. This is a reality for you as a follower of Christ, that right now he could be comforting. You don't have to hold on to all of that stuff. So Paul can say, because his experience is that at the very point of comfort, God is actively comforting. So Paul can say, I'm filled with comfort. And that's not a lie, is it? That's the reality of his life, and that's where he lives. Not looking to follow up with somebody after they hurt them. What is he looking at? He's looking to be comforted by the Lord. See? That makes it easy to have a stretchy kind of fervent love, doesn't it? If you're being comforted by the Lord. If the comfort that you get from him is greater than the offense, which it always is, and the comfort you get from him is greater than the experience that you're having. See, It's a marvelous benefit the believer has. And, and here's the thing. It, it doesn't mean making it easy. Just because he comforts us in all of our afflictions, it doesn't make the affliction easy. And it, again, it's not just a word game, right? I'm, I'm, I'm filled with comfort, I'm filled with comfort, I'm filled with comfort, I'm filled with comfort. And you say it enough that it must be true. No. It's the reality, Paul says. It means strengthening and encouraging and building up and coming alongside. This is the reality of Paul's experience based on his attitude. See, And there are no disclaimers here. It's... It's comprehensive. Again, all just kind of covers everything. There's no small print down at the bottom except for blah, blah, blah. Right. Reaches right into affliction. And then that affliction could be coming from people, right? It, it, it could be coming from a body that doesn't work right. It, it could be coming from natural disasters. It could be coming from wicked rulers. See, it could be coming f- because we see all of that in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't we? All of those things. And we see them now. It could be coming from the Lord as he desires to perfect us. It could be coming from the Lord as a result of his chastening, as he brings us into conformity to the image of his son, that hardship. He also provides comfort along with that, see, and comforts us in all of our affliction, even once he brings on us for our own good. Or for him to prove a heavenly point where he brings things on us like Job, and and this is to prove a point that we're not even connected with for someone who's watching, or perhaps a heavenly some one of the someone is in the heavenlies and says, you know, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, go ahead and do these things. You're going to find that he's true. Whatever it is, see, we don't always know what 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 these afflictions are coming from and why they're coming to us. But the fact of the matter is that he is the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. And so Paul's experience is that to the very point of trouble, God's actively comforting. Whatever the source, see. This ama- and the amazing thing is that God reaches into that affliction and he speaks comfort to us and he looks at us with mercy and he looks at us with compassion. That is your reality, Okay. So when, you know, when you stand before the Lord someday, don't think somehow you're going to have some way to squeeze out of that and say, Lord, but I had a really difficult time. You know, you brought, I was in a family that brought great hardship on me and, and, and hurt me and I had to deal with all that. Nobody's getting out of it. And you're going to stand in line with a great throng of people and many of them will not be from here. The Lord reaches right into that affliction and Paul knows this. I'm fully comforted. It's not a word game. Filled with comfort. And remember, beloved, panic is contagious. You start to panic in the middle of that, and you start to, you start to complain uh, in the middle of that. That's contagious, see? But so is calm. Calm's contagious, too. And so is contentment. Contentment's contagious. If you've been around people who have been through a very difficult time, and they are so content, and they're so calm and all of that, and their response is always, I'm just, I'm filled with comfort. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. It's contagious too. See? And we're going to see the nature of God at work in affliction and comfort in just a few verses. But we saw in 2 Corinthians 1 4, here's the application. Okay? Here's the application. So the attitude is God is the God of, all, of mercy and all comfort. His experience is, God reaches right into my difficult time and is, he's comforting me right now. And then in application, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that, here we go, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which you yourselves have comforted by God. We won't go into all that, but you can, you can see that God has a purpose in all of this, doesn't he? And Paul's application is this completed circle. 
He received these benefits so that he could what? He could turn around and give them away. The Lord provides for his church, doesn't he? It's just a shame when people get only partway around that circle and they can't get, they can't get it into their mind that God is actively comforting and wants to comfort them in all their affliction. And so they can't get back around to the point where they're ever going to be a minister to anybody else. You're just kind of dwelling right there, grinding away and all of that stuff. See, God's at work in any affliction. He's not, and he's not interested. I mean, he's not restricted in every one, anyone, all of them. It's all under God's sovereignty. He's all, he's allowing whatever comes. God's the comforter. We receive his comfort, and part of that is accepting his sovereignty and what he's allowed, right? Sometimes that's the struggle. Accepting that he's sovereign and he's allowed this to be in my life. And you should be teaching that to your kids, beloved. God is good all the time. The world's a terrible place. Sometimes really bad things happen, but it's not apart from God's sovereignty. And he's got a purpose for all of that in your life. Kids should know this as they get older. They should know that, that the, God is always good. And he's always sovereign. And it's always this that we read right here. Even though the world brings hardship to us, and sometimes that's from God's hand, sometimes it's just from a cursed world, sometimes it's from a, a body made out of clay, whatever it is. But through it, the Lord is actively comforting. And through it, the Lord wants to bring about you being a minister to someone else. See? God's the comforter. We receive his comfort. And then we walk through that in the strength and become a reprint of that comfort to someone else. And then back to our passage in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. He goes, I'm full of comfort and I'm overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. And, and there's no way Paul can say that unless, as we pointed out earlier, he has the correct understanding of God's nature, right? And, and if there's, this is number six, if there's going to be reconciliation between believers and the path is going to be clear for reconciliation to occur, we have to look at affliction with the right perspective. Again, this is, this is a maturity thing. This is a sanctification thing. You are going to have to figure out where your comfort comes from so you can take it to him. You've got hurt, and they're genuine. Take it to the Lord. Why? Because he is actively comforting in the middle of whatever it is. And you can leave that with him, and you can say, I'm fully comforted. And you can say, I'm overflowing and withdrawing all of my affliction. Why? Because you understand that we have to look at affliction from the right perspective. We look at our experiences whenever there is affliction. God is right there bringing comfort, see? And, and that is an overarching principle. We can know that wherever our affliction originates and from whomever it originates, we know God is good and he uses it for our good. And the difficulty may be unfair. I'm not saying that it isn't. Paul's certainly was. It wasn't a shared responsibility here with the difficulty sometimes like it is between spouses. This was certainly all one-sided. The church was treating Paul very unfairly. They had judged things that they didn't know the whole story about, and they'd made assumptions about Paul and were very clear about what they felt about him. So the hurts and the difficulty were unfair. Paul's was. The affliction may be caused by cruel people. See? But here's the key. Whatever the source, the outcome is the same. What is it? For our good. For our good. So we can say, I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Why? Because we're mature enough to know that God will have some purpose and some benefit in all of it. He doesn't, we've said this over and over again, get this in your mind, he never wastes any sorrow and he never wastes any affliction if we can become the comforter to someone else. See, if he's conforming us to the image of his son, he, none of that is ever wasted. None of it is ever wasted. This is Paul. He has this attitude of praise. See, and, and 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and we're, we'll see this in much more detail later in our study, but Paul, Paul relates some of what he's learned. He says this, and, and he has said to me, God is speaking to the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather, Paul says, this is my response, boast about my weaknesses. If the Lord has said, my grace is sufficient for you, so whatever the affliction, wherever the hardship's coming from, it comes from unfair people, it comes from, from uh, unkind people, and cruel people, and, and it comes from a hard situation or a body that's broken down, or whatever it is, see, if the fact of the matter is, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, if that's the reality of your understanding of the nature of God, see, if that's the case, 
then you can say then, as Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses. If the power of Christ is visible, then you're going to be okay with what? With the affliction. See? So that the power of Christ may dwell in me, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. And just briefly, three things as you look at this, okay? And you can, you can jot this down if this is helpful to you and put it in your own words. A couple of things we can see here. Because Paul understands the nature of God. And so, just really looks at all these afflictions he suffered as a means of upsetting his own human pride. And that's not a bad thing, is it? Upsetting his own human pride and weakening him to the point where the strength of God was imbued into him and that's what made him the mighty man he was. He understood that among other things that's going, that are going on with affliction and hardship and cruel people and hard, and hard things and unfair things or whatever it is, or a broken down body or, or hardship in, in your community or, or it's a wicked ruler or whatever it is, okay? Getting thrown in jail unjustly tried unjustly, grabbed by your own countrymen and beaten nearly half to death, put down over a wall to escape, taken out and, you know, outside the city and stoned, okay? We could go on and on, okay? He was okay with it because it just upset his own human pride. He couldn't just dwell on how good he was and, you know, everybody really likes my, what I do and how the ministry is going, right? I'm okay, Paul says. It just, it just gets rid of my human pride and imbues in me this power that God wants and then I can be the guy God really wants me to be. And secondly, he could see himself as merely a channel then through which God could pass comfort and strength, as we just saw just a minute ago, to others because he'd experienced so much of it himself. That's the second thing, okay? First thing, it throws pride out the window. Lord doesn't need all of your special gifts and all your things that you're good at. He just needs you to be empty so he can fill you. And sometimes it takes you through a hard road to make sure that you're empty so he can fill you. Okay. And then the third thing, whatever the afflictions were and whatever their source was, and he pulls a lot of sources in. Did you see this? Weaknesses, insults, distresses, with persecutions and difficulties. See, it just takes in a really wide view, doesn't it? takes in hard people, it takes in hard circumstances, it takes in travel down the road, it takes in being lost in the deep for three days, right? It takes all of that stuff in. You just kind of put it all in there. The end result was that God would strengthen him and the power of Christ would be at work in him. That was the end result. Wherever those came from, see, whatever was their source. And so Paul could say, I'm filled with joy in all of our affliction because he had assimilated Beloved, which is what I'm calling you to as we look at these six things, especially these last three. He had assimilated the knowledge that in God's sovereign plan, this affliction he suffered from the church was not circumventing God's ultimate plan for him. It wasn't circumventing it. The church wasn't preventing him from doing the job that he came there to do. In all the hardship and all of that stuff, he realized God's still at work. As you do your ministry, beloved, realize it won't always come back to you like you think it's going to. And hard times may come up and it may not, people might not respond like they're, like you thought that they would. It, it, it doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter. Paul could say, I'm filled with joy. I know that God's sovereign plan is not affected by this affliction. And as a matter of fact, this might come from the Lord's hand to upset my own pride. I put me in a place where I can really be powerful for the Lord's work. See, so we can say, the end of all that affliction, I'm filled with joy. And Paul relied along the way on the mercy and the comfort God provided to his children. He knows that there, and this is God's nature, and nothing will convince him that this isn't true. And as we close our time together, beginning to look at our lives as tools that God is preparing for his use, we move away from a victim mentality. Instead, kind of embracing the fact that God in his sovereignty has allowed us to go through very difficult times or times of suffering for his own glory to bring comfort to you so that you can bring comfort to others. And Paul knows that. And so as he pursues reconciliation and he asks the church to make room in their heart for him, see, he puts these things to work because he wants to make sure he's on the path that he's calling them to walk. Because if there's going to be reconciliation... Love is going to have to be a two-way street, beloved. And if there's going to be reconciliation, the truth may have to be spoken of in love. And if there's going to be reconciliation, 
The church has to get past the petty suspicions and all the personal preferences and raise the bar to an affirmation of the permanent bond that exists between believers. If there's going to be reconciliation between believers, then fervent love is going to have to stop keeping track of all the wrongs and start thinking and talking about the good things. And if there's going to be reconciliation between believers, then you have to seek the Lord for comfort because there's going to be real hardship that you've suffered. We're not diminishing any of that. But the Lord is the comforter. And if there's going to be reconciliation between believers and the path is going to be clear for reconciliation to occur, you have to look at affliction with the right perspective. That this trouble that you've had at the hands of someone else in God's sovereignty, you understand that this must just be so that he can upset your personal pride and put you in a position where he can really work through you as a humble servant, ready to be used by him in power. See, Real power, not your own personal oratory skills or your ability to you know, connect with people, but real power, God's power at work, like he said in Ephesians. The real power that goes to work when we put away all these childish things and stop acting like a child and we grow up into the image of Christ. This is the issue. And may the Lord add his blessing to the church as we begin to deal with hard feelings and unforgiveness in just this way. All right. It's about to be dismissed. In pra- well, let's have some prayer uh, over this time in the word. And then we're going to have a, a short video uh, on a missions moment. And I'll come back up and do a few announcements and we'll close. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to uh, be in your word. We always thank you for that. We're so grateful for just how you have crafted your word so that it's always relevant to the church. You know your people so well. And so as you spoke through the Apostle Paul, as he penned these things and the experiences that he had and the comfort he received, they they have become our comforts too. The way he managed the hardship, many of us have never had anywhere near that kind of hardship. And yet Paul was able to manage that in such a way that we can model it. And no doubt, you gave him the power to do that. He's, no, he's not some super Christian. He dealt with issues just like we do. And yet he understood that you were at work. He understood your nature. Moved away from prevalent thoughts in today's modern Christianity that everything is supposed to be great for every believer. And if it's not, something's wrong with you. God desires for us to all be wealthy and healthy and have everything we want and whatever we ask for, we get. As if somehow he could conform his children to the image of his son by just being some benevolent grandpa. Father, I pray that uh, we'll have a right view of you, understanding the love that you have for us expressed through your son Jesus, who showed agape love to us by laying down his life so that we might be redeemed. We might show love to one another that way. And also, that is our confidence, and it's the place where we find our our identity. We were loved by you with a self-sacrificing love. And from your perspective, we're worthy of it. And so, Lord, we want to live lives with the joy of our relationship and the love you have for us, constraining us. One died for all, therefore all died. That we might rise to be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of God. And Lord, I pray that you'll empower us to do just those things. You've taken many of us through difficult times, and I pray that we'll be conformed in such a way that our pride will be upset and out of the way. might know your power at work through us. I pray that's the kind of ministry we'll have at Berean. True power will raise up people who can be teachers and counselors and ministers and encouragers and mercy showers. Mature, not hanging on to offenses and tossed about like children, but instead growing up, providing all the parts we're supposed to provide to this body so we might function in a healthy manner. I pray this all in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.